I'm Tobias Elwood, Member of Parliament and former Minister for both the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the Ministry of Defence, and I'm currently the Chair of the House of Commons Defence Select Committee. And in recent days, we've been recording a series of podcasts for the Conservative Middle East Council with a number of leading defence and defence policy experts as we approach the publication of the Strategic Defence and Security Review in the hopes that we might be able to speculate or even answer some of the major looming strategic challenges that the UK faces and how we might craft our defence posture in response to that. And I'm delighted to welcome an old friend today, joining me, Lieutenant General Sir Simon Mayo. General Sir Simon has a distinguished 40-year career in the British Army, during which he served in Germany, Northern Ireland, the Balkans, the Middle East, and Central Asia. He's also held several high-level appointments in the policy world of the Ministry of Defence. He has known in the Middle East since his childhood, and over the course of a 40-year career, has served extensively in the region He was seconded to the Sultan of Oman's armed forces for three years, took part in the liberation of Kuwait and served as deputy coalition commander in Baghdad and was the first defense senior advisor for the Middle East and the British government's security envoy to Iraq. Additionally, he was responsible for helping to establish the new Royal Navy base HMS Jafir in Bahrain, and he was knighted in 2014 and also holds the US Legion of Merit. So, Simon, very much welcome to the show. Delighted to have you with us today. Thank you very much, Lars. Very privileged to be with you on this uh, on the show today as well. Thank you. So much to explore. Just take us through some of the background that, uh, you know, how did you end up sort of growing up in the Middle East? What established that love, if you like, and uh, took you into the British Camel Corps? <laughs> well, that's, um, that old cry, if you ever talk to, I know you have, Tobias, when you, we've talked to friends in the, in the Arab region, that there is sand in the blood of many, of, of many British people. Uh, my grandparents originally went out to the Middle East and then on to India after the First World War. My father's first posting was to the Canal Zone. He was then in 1958, just after the Suez Crisis, bringing 16 Airborne Brigade into Amman in Jordan to help stabilise the Hashemite regime after the uh, fall of the monarchy in Iraq. And then in 58, uh, 59, when I was quite young, my father was posted to be a pilot in Cormac's Air Base in Aden in uh, Yemen, that rather sad country at the moment. We stayed there three years. And I think it very much got under my skin then as an impressionable youngster of between three and five. And I remember going back to Oman on secondment to the Sultan's Armed Forces in 1985 and landing in the middle of a ferociously hot Omani day and feeling instantly at home. And I think it was just these sort of early childhood memories of the sound of Arabic and the, the glare of the sun and the you know, the starkness of the surroundings. And just by, I suppose, professional necessity, shortly after I came back from Oman, we went back out to the Gulf for the liberation of Kuwait and through the 90s and then clearly after 9-11, the focus of British defence and foreign policy was on the sort of what we call the wars of 9-11. And one was routinely drawn back into either operationally or policy side into uh, focus on the Middle East. And so it's a sort of combination of personal experience, I suppose, and upbringing, uh, academic choice. I studied the Crusades. I wrote a book on Turkey and I did a thesis on jihad and, and obviously professional necessity and the sort of triangulation has really given me a real passion and, and love for the region, however frustrating and fractured we can, we can find it. 
I think it's to the, the nation's benefit that you chose to use that incredible experience and love for the region to pursue public office in the way that you've done. And we're very grateful for you to share your experiences here today. You mentioned the Suez crisis, and, and perhaps it's actually worth putting into perspective as a backdrop just how Britain's personality or indeed commitment to the region altered during that time. Could you just quickly summarize perhaps the collateral damage that was caused by some abrupt strategic decision making, which hopefully we've started to unpick a bit? I think it's difficult to, you know, for our, our generation, realize what a shock Suez was. It was the year I was born, 1956. For my parents' generation, or our parents' generation grew up in the Second World War and the trials, tribulations, and then the, the victory at the end. And then that attempt, of course, to hold on to or re-establish areas of British influence around the world. By 56, of course, we had independence for India and Pakistan. And the writing was on the wall in certain areas, but that sort of challenge to a really serious linkage in Britain's strategic position around the, the world, the Suez Canal, which we'd largely owned and run since 1869, really came as a, a real shock. And the worst part of it was, of course, it was a controversial operation but made even more controversial by the way it sort of finished, not entirely supported by our great ally, the Americans. And I think it was hugely damaging to British self-confidence and to Western self-confidence, and it didn't really redound to anybody's credit. And of course, not long after that, we had the decision by the Wilson government under Dennis Healy to withdraw from east of Suez. And originally, that was assumed to be only from the Far East, our bases in uh, Singapore in particular. And then somewhere along with a, a sort of cultural cringe about the British Empire or colonialism, and of course, economic weakness. We then expanded that and decided to withdraw from the Gulf as well. We were coming out of aid at that time. And I think for a very long time afterwards, we have, I would argue, rude that decision, because we've been drawn back into the region time and again, often by the affection of people in that region for the British and their acknowledgement of the stability that we brought in the face of threats from people like the Iranians, which continues. So under the government of which you were a minister, Tobias, you'll, you'll remember we had long conversations about trying to get the language of East of Suez back in the British foreign policy lexicon. Um, and when we did eventually, you know, full marks up, you know, all of us who were involved in it, get the new base in Bahrain, I think it really was an acknowledgement that we were foolish, really, to not have a firm base in a part of the world that is going to consistently attract our security and prosperity interests. And again, you'll, you'll remember when we had this discussions with Philip Hammond when he was defence minister, and, you know, he said to me, well, I hear what you say about the withdrawal from East of Suez, Simon, but we have been East of Suez for the last 40 years. And I sort of rather snidely said, well, what you mean is we've actually been East of Suez one year 40 times. And so I, I do think we're back in a place where we have a lateral locus. And I think it's good for Britain's place in the world. I think it's good for our defence posture. I think it's good for our looking like a reliable, steadfast, credible ally to our friends. It's interesting you speaking about Britain's place in the world. The integrated review, the defence, security and foreign policy study that is the government is undertaking now will be critical to outline and confirm what that place in the world is. Do we have a voice? Is there a leadership role that we can take advantage of, given the crossroads, if you like, where we sit in the Commonwealth, NATO, UN Security Council? You mentioned the United States. They, they seem to have taken a little bit more of a back seat, perhaps, on the international circuit. We are living in dangerous times at the moment. Is, would you like to see Britain be more vocal, more front-footed on the international stage? Uh, personally, I would. 
I'm hugely ambitious for our country. I think not only we should do, we have a responsibility to. I absolutely understand the pressures that any government is under, not least this one when it comes to COVID, the issue of Brexit, of course. Also, I think because American retrenchment, the comforting assumptions we had during the Cold War and in the decade, maybe the two decades after the fall of the Berlin Wall, of American leadership and American responsibility behind which we as good allies, either as a bilateral, Five Eyes, Anglosphere, NATO, UN, etc., could really step up. But this is absolutely, for a country like ours, not the time to be resigning from, from those responsibilities and challenges. And, and equally, I think there are huge opportunities. Um, and I hate the thought of Britain either creating a narrative that says pull up the drawbridge or just simply says let's just barricade the front door. For us, I think this is a good time to be out bringing our capabilities, our credibility in foreign affairs, in the military sphere, in the security sphere, to our friends and allies, and messaging to those who wish us harm and those who wish us well and those who are frankly sitting on the fence a bit in order to see which way the sort of tide of history goes, that we should be out there making, making the case for Britain's role in the world. And you're absolutely right to say we have the most almost unique position in a Venn diagram of, of NATO, transatlantic, Commonwealth, European prospects. And we should not look on investment in defence as some zero-sum game that it has to come at the expense of something else. Again, you and I had many discussions about how you know, the linkage of our security agenda with our prosperity agenda could be much better articulated. We could be much more forward-leaning with offering support this is not about defence sales necessarily. That is an element. It's not necessarily about supporting the defence industrial base, another big element, employment, another big element. But it is about going around the world, showing that Britain is not simply a good, fair-weather friend, but is a friend who has capable armed forces backed by real, credible, hard power that we would be prepared to use on behalf of our friends and allies or in support of good causes and I think on the back of that, there will be prosperity advantages to the United Kingdom. This is precisely the time, to, to my mind, to embrace that type of narrative. And of course, this is the stock check that the government needs to take. Before we start focusing more in detail on the Middle East, which uh, I know this is your, your love and your, your area of expertise, I just wanted to ask you about what's seen as the immediate and the more strategic threats, and namely Russia and China. We've seen an emboldened Putin, elected now essentially for life, able to remove opposition voices in the way that he is now getting a reputation for. How worried should the West be? How worried should Britain be? And what should our, our response be in relation to NATO? I think the key with Russia, it is a huge threat. I don't see it as an existential threat. It doesn't embrace any sort of universalism. It has no particular ideology. Churchill sort of gave the great enigma in a riddle in a whatever and, and answered it by saying, you know, the key to it is Russian national interest. Russia, as a great historical power with a sense of, I suppose, inferiority complex up to a point, is basically taking advantage of a, of a, of a global situation that allows it to flex its muscles. In terms of NATO, I think we absolutely need to make sure that Mr. Putin doesn't miscalculate one does worry about the Baltic states, of course, and who would be a huge issue of credibility for NATO if Russia didn't move against them. You know, the states of Belarus and Ukraine have thrown up some challenges for us, not that we've always risen to. And clearly, Putin is investing an awful lot in hard power. And again, we might come back to the question of, you know, we all get cyber, we all get asymmetric threats, etc. But the 
place for hard power does still still exist. And it is sad that we can't find, particularly with the rise of China and, and the continuing threat, dare I say, from Islamist terrorism or the collapse in the Middle East, you know, that really affects the southern border of Russia. We can't find more areas where we might find some common some common ground. And you can take that back to perhaps a failure to handle the dissolution of the Soviet Empire back in the 1990s. On the China issue, again, I, I feel Chinese communist universalism has gone, but undoubtedly China is determined to be the master in its own backyard. And there will be a challenge to the Americans there. You know, We have an issue, again, as the British, whether we wish to go out there as part of the five-power defence agreement in support of, dare I say, the other members of the Anglosphere, all of whom are Pacific powers, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and, uh, and America, and be seen there. And then, of course, the other one on China is that although America, one of the reasons America is stepping back from the Middle East is because of the issue of its own drive towards energy independence, the Chinese are increasingly being drawn into the region by their continued dependence on oil and gas coming out of the Gulf region. And as you know, as well as anybody to us, 80% now of all the oil and gas flows through the Straits of Hormuz now turn east towards China. And a bit like the East India Company or the British government went to support the East India Company as it expanded to the east, supporting our, our trade links. I think we're going to find China increasingly challenging on the maritime sea links to the Middle East to make sure that they're not dependent on America for, for maritime security. The, the capacity for us to come into some sort of conflict or confrontation with China or Russia still absolutely exists. And so once again, you're back to deterrence and how you message that through the politics and diplomacy to make sure that people don't miscalculate and we walk into something that turns into more than a sort of unpleasant confrontational standoff. Do we need to think more, though, about strategically what our positions is regarding Russia and China rather than the tactical responses? Let's take what's happened in Hong Kong, for example, we've condemned China's actions and its new security laws. But what we've also done is offered a place for the Hong Kongers who were under the British flag as such before 97. But that won't solve the situation as such. And in some cases, it's actually playing to China's hands. Do we not need to be stepping back on, on from China and recognizing that they are encouraging a different view of the world, a different ideology as such, where countries through the debts that they get into and the digital commitments they are then beholden to are actually obliged to follow a parallel set of rules, which may slide us towards a bipolar world. I was always very disappointed when America really had a sort of preeminence after the fall of the Berlin Wall and collapse of the Soviet Union. Everybody said, oh, no, what we don't want, we don't want a monopolar world with just, you know, we want to, we, it's much better to have a multipolar world. And you've got the idea that they all thought this multipolar world would be other sort of Americas sharing our same sort of liberal democratic values. And I, and then, oh, Clive, you know, be careful what you wish for, it might come true. It's exactly, to my mind, what, what's happening at the moment. And people like Trump, I think, actively accept that, you know, once again, uh, you know, I don't think he feels that America has a universalism that we again had assumed from the Second World War almost till within the last decade. And I remember having a conversation with officials of the National Security Council. Where we were just having one of these pre-Christmas looks ahead. And I said, and this is about a decade ago, I said, I think one of the major challenges we'll have is from powers with a sense of historical entitlement. And there's no doubt about it. Countries like Russia and China, stripped of their 
ideological underpinnings of communism, whatever, and Iran, and you could put maybe India in there, have this huge sense of historical entitlement in which they don't believe that the sort of Francis Fukuyama vision of the end of history, we've won all the, um, the major philosophical, ideological battles, you know, this is the way we're all going, individual rights, etc. They do not believe that. And in some ways, one has to acknowledge that there are spheres of influence. It takes us back to a rather older time that none of us are used to in our lifetime. And it is managing that, I suppose, in a manner that says it's in all our interests. You know, the days of occupying other people's countries are not really good for the occupiers as well as, you know, whatever you get from the occupied. And I suppose managing China in particular because of its size and the nature of its political structure and the consciousness that they're riding a tiger themselves, having had this huge economic growth. The Communist Chinese Party is very conscious. There's still 700 million people, almost as big as Europe and America combined, still well below the poverty line. And riding that out in the era of telecommunications and social media and the internet, etc., I think is, is difficult for them. And the danger, again, of course, like so many times in history, is people try to distract attention from their internal problems by manufacturing external threats or external crises. And again, trying to deter, reassure where necessary, keep lines of communication open, demonstrate that we recognize where people's interests legitimately lie, try to talk people into a better place is a good one. But at a certain stage, as we know from the period of the 1930s, you can't necessarily guarantee that you're always going to be reasonable people talking to reasonably other people to achieve reasonable solutions. It's interesting there, you're saying that the, the influence of China itself, I think there were many, many of us, uh, and I go back to George Osborne, David Cameron, who did a trip to China, hoping that they would mature Indeed, a, a global statesman uh, and responsible you know, international citizen embracing you know, democratic accountability, human rights, and so on. That clearly hasn't happened. And so they're now almost like a tug of war with many other nations around the world tested as to whether they should sort of jump into bed trade-wise and so forth. One area where uh, clearly we have a, an advantage in our influence, in our friendship, in, in historical connections is the Middle East. And there needs to be, I think, more we need to do to confirm our bond with with these countries that we know only so well. I'm going to test you now, if I may, if you're uh, looking at a map of the Middle East. I want you to just give me a because there is a danger for the uninitiated of putting all the, the GCC nations in one basket. And actually, they are like different brothers of a family. They've all got different characteristics. You know, it's very easy to talk about the Middle East, as you and I know. And in some ways, there are great unifying aspects of it. You know, one, of course, is religion. Uh, another one is language. And to an extent, there's a historical understanding of the caliphate and the Ummah. But of course, when you do break it down, let's leave North Africa other than Egypt. Egypt, Turkey, Iran, and then the Arabs of Arabia, and then the Arabs really of Mesopotamia. They're sort of building blocks, and they all overlap. And they are very, very distinct. And they all, again, going back to my point about historical entitlement, the Egyptians feel historically entitled, you know, that great civilization. The Turks, certainly through the Ottoman instinct, the Iranians, absolutely through both Shiism and their great imperial past, both Islamic and pre-Islamic. And then you take Mesopotamia, of course, where they all competed, you know, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan. And then, of course, you come down, as you say, into Arabia Felix, the Arabian Peninsula, with, of course, the, the G 
PCC countries, and then that very awkward country, Yemen, at the bottom. And the biggest country and the one that carries the most moral authority and is, to my mind, the most important and critical for stability is, of course, Saudi Arabia. It is a large country by Gulf standards, you know, 30 million people, probably about 20 million indigenous, 10 million expatriates. Interesting that when you ask people about Yemen, what size do you think Yemen is? You know, most people will fall somewhere within two and five million people. And again, you and I know it's nearly 30 million itself. So Saudi Arabia, with both its oil wealth on the one hand and its custodianship of the two holy places, two holy cities, Mecca and Medina, under an individual family, and again, you're quite right to spot or to draw attention to the the family element of these countries that we treat as a state, the House of Al Saud, really, really both fascinating and unsettling at the moment, particularly under this sort of dynamic new leadership. And then you go to Kuwait, which has been the focus, of course, of British effort. Kuwait always been quite quiet, went independent almost first of all the Gulf states, and has sat, you know, very close to Iran, very close to Saudi Arabia, very close to, to Iraq, and has acted as a, as a mediator, not very active, but a mediator in, in many, many Gulf, Gulf struggles. Come down the coast, of course, you come to Bahrain, island, kingdom, where the American Fifth Fleet is, where the new British base, Jaffair, is, and really completely tied to Saudi Arabia on many, many issues by clearly its proximity and aided by Saudi Arabia during the, the uprisings of Pearl Randbach. And, and a problem area because, again, you know, as well as anybody to ask, the, the, the demographics of a sort of sheer majority give Iran plenty of opportunity to interfere there. Come down a little bit further, there's Qatar. Qatar, really new to the game, big growth of wealth since 1995, struck out on its own under the previous emir, huge gas reserves, which it shares on a gas field with, with Iran. And then, of course, the divisions within the Gulf world, you know, despite the fact they're Sunni Arab and their monarchies, came to the fore during the Arab Spring when Qatar found itself very firmly on the side of the Muslim Brotherhood during the Egyptian element of the Arab Spring. And UAE and Saudi Arabia very firmly on the side of the forces of stability and the status quo in the military in Egypt. And Qatar, which had sort of espoused Al Jazeera as a very critical of, of I suppose, the status quo in, in the Middle East, found itself supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, ended up on the wrong side, of course, of that argument, but then found itself in a standoff with Saudi Arabia, and particularly UAE, leading to a blockade. And in order to get out of the blockade, what did it do? A, it fell back on its American connections, because America has the largest base in the Middle East there in Al-Udid. But it also invited the Turks and the Iranians in to an extent, and sort of armoured itself like that, which made it even more unpopular, but unhelpful. And then you come down to the um, the UAE and the sort of key player there, Mohammed bin Zayed, who's de facto ruler there, very hard over on, uh, uh, very hard over on, on, on the Muslim Brotherhood, very hard over on, uh, on Iran, and interestingly leading the UAE to be only the third country to, to um, form a, you know, a formal relationship with Israel. So that'll play out. And then down to the country I know very, very well, Oman, um, uh, you know, the great Sultan Qaboos, you know, the, the founder, the father of the country, died earlier this year. Uh, and again, always an, an outward look, never comfortably in the GCC. You know, used to own the Swahili coast, used to own Guador and Baluchistan, very much like the Yemenis in many ways, you know, great seafaring maritime people, conscious of other cultures, very self-confident in, in its own way, very closely aligned with Britain, of course, because of the, the Dofar War. Um, so you're absolutely right to say do not 
lump them all together. You know, there, there, there is a case for sometimes talking about the GCC, and there is a case always for talking about sort of regionalism. But even within individual countries within the GCC, there are big differences. The eastern provinces of Saudi Arabia, Shia-dominated, the southern western provinces where actually most of the hijackers in 9-11 came from, very close to Yemen, which has always been a source of great Islamic radicalism. One of the purposes of CMEC actually is to take parliamentarians, indeed, to in these individual countries and to see the, the region as a whole and understand the differences, the nuances and the characteristics, because it's so important, because it's so easy to inadvertently insult or you know, offend if you, if you don't understand these aspects, the loyalties, the histories and so forth. And of course, they're ever changing. And you focused on the peninsula itself. But of course, the big change that we're seeing is into the north with Israel. The one democracy, the full democracy in a tough neighborhood is the fact that we now have peace agreements. Now, in all my time of being foreign minister, I remember giving almost the same speech at UN Security Council meetings year after year, wanting to bring people around the table and honor the Oslo Accords and so forth. And, and whilst we haven't got a full peace agreement here now, the fact that we've got countries which for so long didn't even accept the existence of Israel. I look at it through the British perspective to say, and the integrated review, of course, is to say that we now have Bahrain, we have the UAE, recognizing Israel, wanting to open up and do trade deals. There's opportunities there, surely, for Britain to work with our friends, essentially, because we are friends on both sides of the aisle here to help strengthen that bond through security and prosperity. I would agree entirely. It is absolutely bedeviled, complicated our relationships in the region, trying to be even-handed, you know, recognising certainly perceived grievances, certainly security concerns on both sides, and certainly the way other people have used that standoff for their own advantages, either as an excuse for something or just to divert attention from their own internal failings. I do think the fact of American withdrawal to an extent and the rise of Iranian power in the region, there's no doubt about it, the removal of Saddam Hussein did allow Iran to join up its Shia sympathizers from, obviously, Baghdad, Basra, all the way through to the Alawites and Hezbollah on the Mediterranean coast. And I think that has focused a lot of people's minds. I do think the Palestinians, who have, to an extent, allowed themselves to be used as a pawn in a bigger game, have missed a lot of opportunities to have seen certain other moments in history when we could have had a better outcome for the Palestinians. I think there's no doubt about it. You know, it's a new generation. The demographic issues in the Middle East are extraordinary. I think nearly half the population of Saudi Arabia were not even born by the time of 9-11. It's something remarkable like that. It's close to it, which means they haven't just accepted the Nakba, the catastrophe, the 1948, 1956. This is history for them as opposed to day to day. And therefore, there is a time for trying to, I suppose I would argue now that this would be the time to try and push the Israelis into doing something that exhibits some goodwill towards the Palestinians, because there is leadership in UAE. I don't expect the Saudi Arabians to, to jump in formally or publicly anytime soon because of the sensitive nature of being the custodians of the two holy cities. But undoubtedly, this tacit understanding, it wouldn't have happened with Bahrain and UAE unless there was some sort of tacit understanding in Riyadh. And in some ways, this is an opportunity for people of goodwill to try and come up with something that's realistically achievable, even acknowledging that you know, the facts have been changed on the ground quite significantly by an aggressive settler policy. 
the United States. I mean, we've got an election coming up. Some of the activities that we've seen during this presidency, removing troops from Europe, first of all, the footprint there is reduced, and then also taking troops out of North Syria, which immediately caused a bit of a vacuum and then allowed another NATO ally to move in and challenge the Kurdish democratic forces that NATO had been training. Are you concerned about perhaps the US retreating from perhaps this unwritten small print that comes in to any US presidency that there is a bit of global policeman work that needs to continue? Otherwise, the world does become more insecure. You know, it was in the bloodstream of America. JFK will shoulder any burden, support any allies. It was a default setting. I think, sadly, since 2003 and uh, and the engagement in, in Iraq and the consequences of that, that has, to an extent, been eroded. And America's always had a very, very strong sense of isolationism. It was thrust into, you know, into global predominance or, or global guarantor for countries like Britain and other democracies around the world. The worry is it's not an instinct in, in large parts of America. I do think they've looked at their NATO colleagues, perhaps ourselves with, as an honourable exception, as not having said, we're going to shoulder our proportion of the burden of our own security. I think that began under Obama, that retrenchment, and I think it's accelerated a bit under Trump. Trump's made it very transactional. But I do worry about, if I was a long-standing ally of the United States, I would worry that we are not doing enough to convince the American people that we value their contribution, that we are conscious that our lifestyle has been underpinned by their commitment to us over the decades. The consequence, obviously, of stepping back is that you create vacuums. And the vacuums that are often filled in the Middle East when there isn't the appropriate governance or indeed security is fundamentalism and extremism. And are you concerned that uh, whilst we defeated the Daesh Caliphate geographically, and that we're now focusing perhaps on uh, in a resurgent uh, Russia, rising China, that it would be very dangerous for us not to recognise the dangers that extremism uh, still presents? When I look around the whole Middle East, it is difficult to see the social, political and economic models that are going to enfranchise large numbers of young people. And there's no doubt about it that Al-Qaeda and Daesh, ISIS, Islamic State, absolutely throve on presenting themselves as defenders of Islam, defenders of the Arab world, defenders of Sunni Islam against Shiism. Those messages found very strong resonance among many of the un- and underemployed youth, male youth of the Middle East. You know, a sense of certainty, you know, the gang culture, very seductive images on social media, etc. And I don't think any of that has really gone away. So that makes me gloomy for the region, I have to say to us. You know, the vacuum is going to be filled there. So Simon, it would be remiss of me just as we come to the end not to congratulate you on another book. It's been a tour de force speaking to you this morning. Thank you so much for your time. Can you confirm that much of what you do talk about is in this, your latest book, I think it's called A Soldier in the Sand, A Personal History of the Modern Middle East. Do you go into detail? Because what you've done has is, is been an incredible walkthrough, the wonders, but also the complexities of what is actually an incredible part of the world. I certainly do, Tobias. And if you allow me th- just 30 seconds, it, I hope it sets out in an accessible, readable way, the sort of building blocks of the Middle East in terms of ethnicity, borders, historical entitlement, the rise of Islam, the splits within Islam and then ensures, hopefully, that people then can apply that to the modern political 
turmoil they occasionally see and doing it through a three-generational family story in some way. So it's part military memoir, part family story, part sort of geopolitical study. And I hope for people who are fascinated by the region but find it difficult to get a, a handle on some of these nuances and differences or where they come from or how they're connected, it might prove a good way to get more confidence that people know what they're looking at and hopefully find it entertaining and amusing while they're reading it. Well, if we're to judge this podcast as, as a yardstick, I'm sure there's exactly that indeed. I look forward to reading the book myself. So Simon, thank you so much for joining me today in this series of podcasts for the Conservative Middle East Council. Very grateful for your time and for sharing your thoughts. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Jamal. It's a huge pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.